Welcome to Thrive Lathrop Podcast. Here at our church, we believe that everyone can thrive. Make sure to subscribe to our channel and enjoy this life-changing message. Amen. Come on, does anybody love Jesus in this house? Oh, come on, y'all can do better than that. Does anybody love Jesus? Amen. Thank you very much. You can go ahead and take your seats. Man, I'm so excited to be here. It was so incredible to be here at the conference yesterday and to be here for first service. Now, they told me the first service was the save service, but they told me second service was a super save service. Amen. Is that true? <laughs> hey, um, really? <laughs> they're like, whatever, man, just preach. And, uh, you know, Pastor Chris, I really like that concept of pajama church. Just to let you know, you can use my house. We'll have Bakersfield uh, Pajama Church in Mikasa. Amen. And so I'm excited about that. Hey, I just love your pastor, Pastor Chris and Vanessa. They are just incredible people. They have just been such a blessing, such a consistent blessing in my life and in the life of my, my wife and my children. And um, it's just so great to be able to be here. And I said it at team conference, but if you weren't here, I remember being here before when Pastor Chris was the youth pastor. And then I remember coming here when Pastor Chris was the executive pastor, and then now I get to come back and Pastor Chris is the lead pastor, and I believe if I ever get invited again, he's probably going to be the mayor of the city. I don't know what's going to happen, but you just keep going from glory to glory, man, and I love it, and so I'm so grateful. Uh, man, in first service, I probably, uh, if you guys ever remember back in the day, that Micro Machine Man, everybody remember that Micro Machine Man that talked really fast? Back in the, there's like three of us, that's awkward. Anyways... <laughs> That was me first service because of the time crunch, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and take my time. I believe that God has given me a word for this house, a word for you collectively as a church, but a word for you individually as followers of Jesus, and maybe those of you who will make the decision to be a follower of Jesus. And so I haven't preached this sermon anywhere else but here. I mean, I might even go preach it at my church on Sunday, so I don't have to buy another one on Amazon, remember that night. And so thank God for Prime. It comes right away. Uh, but I'm going to be reading out of the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, I'm going to start at verse 1 and read through 13. Um, if you're a note taker or if you're someone that likes titles, the title of my talk, the title of this message today is The Enemy of Familiarity. The Enemy of Familiarity. I really believe something. I really believe that in this next year that we are currently standing in, that God wants to do some profound things in your life, in your life individually and your life collectively as the body, as the church, as the bride of Christ. I believe that God has some great things for us. And oftentimes as we step into the new year, one of the greatest mistakes that we make as followers of Jesus is that we tend to put the entire weight and the responsibility of a new year on God. We try to put the entire weight on him, hoping that as we step into this year, there's going to be a year of jubilee that I'm just going to have to sit back and just coast through the year because he's going to make all things new. And the reality is that God does make all things new. And the reality is that there is something profound that does happen as we step into the new year, it gives us a sense of newness. And God is always moving in seasons and in years and things of that nature. But oftentimes we negate or neglect the fact that God also places a responsibility on us. Yes. That oftentimes that the promises of God are conditional, meaning that it requires us to do something so that he can move on his end as well. And so I really believe without a shadow of a doubt that this year will be whatever you choose to make it. 
If you desire a great year, it will be a great year. If you desire an excellent year, it'll be an excellent year. It doesn't mean that it will not come with hardships or challenges or setbacks, but it's all, I think, in how we perceive it and how we receive it. Amen? So 1 Samuel chapter 16, and if you've been in the church for some time, you're familiar with this portion of Scripture. At our church, we never presume that everybody is familiar with Scripture, so we kind of just share a little bit of context. This is where King David is getting ready to be king. He's ready to be anointed as king. Uh, Saul was is the king at this time, but God has rejected Saul. Samuel the prophet has been lamenting over the fact that Saul has been rejected as king, but God has realized and Samuel has also realized that Israel needs a new king. You see, Saul was the people's choice. Saul was what the people wanted, but David was heaven's choice. David is what the people needed. Often what you want and what you need are two very different things. And so in this text, we see that it is not the wants of the people that have elected this man and anointed him as king, but it is what heaven has desired in the need of heaven. So this is what the Bible says. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about this, he will kill me. Then the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and make tacos de asada. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. But that sounds bomb right now. Verse three. <laughs> I just lost half the room. Someone's like, ooh, I want mine with cilantro and onions. The green sauce, not the red sauce, because that mug is fire. And so I don't need any more hair on my chest. All right, here we go. Verse three. <laughs> I just lost 15 minutes off the counter. How'd that happen? <laughs> Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Now Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town, they trembled when they met him and they asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. That's a good place to say amen. amen. Then Jesse called, and this name right here be driving me crazy, Abinab, Abinab, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Verse 9. Jesse then had Shammah pass, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. So Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Yo, Sam, yo his dad must have been Latino with all them kids up in the house. Bless God. I can say that. I'm Latino. Amen. All right. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? No, there's actually still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, for we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features, just like Pastor Chris. Amen. <laughs> 
Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's alive. It's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. I pray that word this morning will penetrate our hearts, Lord Jesus. Father, your word says that it will reap a harvest in our lives. So I pray that it would do just that, that it would reap a harvest in our lives. I pray that you would open the eyes and the ears of our heart that we might be able to see you more clearly and hear you more clearly. God, if we've come into the room this morning with any type of distraction, any preconceived notions of church, leaders, pastors, whatever whatever it might be, God, I pray that maybe we would just set that aside just for a few moments so that we might actually hear from you. And wherever we are at on this spiritual journey of life, God, whether we've known you all the days of our lives, whether we're new to the faith or we don't know who you are at all, I pray that you would speak to us, Lord. And so, God, we thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. So uh, last yesterday I talked about my son. I love my son. He's great. And I got four kids, three girls and one boy. And so my son is awesome. And my son's birthday is in December. So he's like one of those interesting kids where he's got like the birthday and Christmas at the same time. And so we just divide his presents and we just give, you know what I mean? So they all get the same. He doesn't know that. Don't tell him. And so for Christmas or his birthday, he wanted an Xbox. And so we did what us as parents would do when a child asks us for an expensive gift. We go to the grandparents. And so we went to grandma and we told grandma, hey, your, your grandson in whom you love and whom you are well pleased with, desireth the next boxeth, right? And so, and so, you know, she basically bought all of Best Buy and gave it to him. And so we got in the Xbox and I was tasked with the responsibility of assembling the Xbox. Now, some of you were in here that were saying there is nothing to assemble. But when you are 39 and on the cusp of turning 40, an Xbox requires assembly. Amen. And so I open this and I put it together and I am struggling to get this thing linked online and tied in with my social security number and a urine sample. It's just insane. And so nonetheless, I've got this whole situation going on and he wanted me to play with him after a couple of weeks when we got it set up. He wanted me to play with him. And I, it was the most complex thing I have ever encountered in my life. Just to make a character jump, you have to push like 17 buttons, stick your tongue out, blink once, and cough. Like, and he, he's, he loves it because he annihilates me in any game he plays. And so I had to school my son and to let him know where I'm from. I'm from the old school, amen? I'm from that Nintendo era. Anybody remember that Nintendo? Let's take it back to 1988. <laughs> My daughter asked me the other day, Poppy, when you were born, did you see in color or in black and white? <laughs> I said, girl, she said, well, you were born in the 1900s. And I said, your mama. Anyways, and so, and, that was it. God bless you. We'll see you next week. <laughs> see you in pajama church. <laughs> And so, um, anyways, you know, the era of Nintendo, right? When you bought it, like, back in, I got mine in 89. It came with, like, two games. It came with Super, uh, Super Mario Brothers. I almost sang the Biggie song. Super Nintendo, Sega. Anyways, and so it came with a Nintendo, and it came with the Mario Brothers one and Duck Hunt. Who knows about Duck Hunt? Duck Hunt is the only game that we first got that you could be gangster. But you only got three feet of being gangster because it was connected to the console. It was the game that if you watched the gangster movie, you would go from shooting ducks like this to like this. Blackout, quack, quack, this, blackout. 
Some of you were so ghetto, you would put the gun to the TV and you would just start shooting, you cheaters. Hey, nobody saw, but God saw, the Lord knows, amen. Now the only product, the Nintendo would come only with two buttons, a power button and a reset button. And it came with those game cartridges. Remember those ones that you would try to put in and it wouldn't work, so you would take it out and what would you do? You blow it. And then you put it between your shirt so you wouldn't get spit on it and you would blow it. And then I had friends that would tell me if you put it in the freezer, it works. I had someone's grandma tell me Windex would work. Everybody got the grandma that put Windex on everything. I mean, it's like Vicks, right? Good thing we didn't have Google then. No, you just put it in the pozole for two hours and you take it out and then you put it in. Duh, and that's how it works. But I remember that you could only play so long and then the game would not store any memory. It wouldn't save anything. That's why as a child, when your parents would call you to dinner or tell you it was time to go to bed, you'd be like, no, mom, just give me two more days. I'm almost there because you could not save any of the information or any of the memory. And I love the reset button because if you were angry as all outdoors that you weren't passing Mario level eight and Bowser was taking you out, all you'd have to do to let out your frustration is hit that reset button and say, how you like me now, Bowser? <laughs> Done, Pff, gone. Now the cool thing was, is when you were playing with a sibling or like my cousin, and they would be, and they wouldn't want to give you the remote and they would hog the game up. So what I would do, I don't know if there's anybody at Traviosos like me, but I would do is I would accidentally walk by, trip on the cable, and just hit that reset button. Like, oh, oh my gosh, did I do that? Piper, I'm so sorry. Like, you know what I mean? Just totally erase it and annihilate it. And it would completely erase the entire memory and have you, make, have you start all over again. It was a good thing and it was a frustration, but the reset button essentially erased all of the memory that you had just went through in an entire game. And I share that with you because I believe that as God is leading you into the newness of this year, as God is leading you into the promises that he has for you, as God desires to lead you into the blessing, into the ministry, into the marriage, into the family dynamic, into the business uh, idea that he has for you, that he's saying if you want to step into the new thing, you're going to have to reset, hit reset on some old things. That you cannot step into the newness of this year carrying last year's perspective. You cannot step into the newness of this year carrying last year's operating system because last year's operating system will produce the same results in this new year if you are not careful. There are some of you already who you have stepped into this new year already carrying last year's caca. And you've expected a new outcome. That's called insanity. Doing the same thing the same way, expecting a new outcome. And as we read this story and you would wonder, how does Nintendo have anything to do with King David? It does not. No, I'm just kidding. But here we find the prophet Samuel. He knows that Israel needs a new king. He knows that Israel needs a new leader. He knows that Israel cannot continue to go in the direction that it is headed in with the leader that they have because the leader is in constant sin. The leader is full of pride. The leader is full of arrogance. The leader is carrying some things that he has been reluctant to let go of. If he would have let go of it, God would have established his kingdom and the kingdom of his lineage. But because of his sin, God has removed the kingdom from him. God gave him two opportunities to make things right, and he ended up squandering them both. So Samuel the prophet knows that Israel needs a new king. But the problem is, is that Samuel comes into the king's anointing party with last year's operating system. He knows that something new needs to happen, but as he comes to look for the king, he's still looking for the things that he looked at when he anointed Saul. Saul. 
See, the thing that stood out about King Saul was that the brother was fine. He was good looking and he was one foot taller than the rest of the people. He was distinguished. He was the people's choice. And so is Samuel knowing that something new needed to happen? As Samuel, knowing that there needed to be a sense of newness, walks into this king anointing party, but he walks in looking for old attributes in a new king. He comes in looking for the appearance, and God says to him, you're looking at the things that man looks at, but I look at the things that are in the unseen. I look at the heart, and my kingdom will not be established by the likes of man, but by the favor of heaven. Some of you, I want you to know that last year there were some things that you stepped into that God was not in. That God let you run its course. That God let you step into the things that you wanted to step into in order to show you that what you thought was good was not what heaven thought was great. Some of us are prodigals. We have to learn through our mistakes in order to recognize what we lost, what we have, and what we have to gain. And in this year, God is saying, I let you do things your way, but in this year, you're going to have to do things my way. You've been looking at things through the lens of, of humanism and the, lens, and the things in the natural, but now you're going to have to see things through the lens of the supernatural. And so as you step into this next year, there's some things that you're going to have to let go. I love what Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 says. It says this, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I love this text, and we can't take this text out of context in order to actually do it justice. When you read that scripture, or when we've heard that scripture, or when I've heard it preached before, forget the former things, we're often like, that's too, I can forget my sin. I can forget my mistakes. I freaking get what they did to me because God is doing a new thing. Now, that is a good thing to do. He takes our sin as far as the east is from the west, and he makes it no more. Those are all great things. But in context, that scripture is actually saying something different. You have to look at the history of what is going on in this moment. In this moment, as Isaiah is prophesying, as Isaiah is being an oracle of the Lord, as he's being a mouthpiece of God, the Israelites are in captivity to the Babylonians. They are slaves, and they are in this predicament because of their sin. They had turned from God, so God turned them over to the folly of their sin. And so the Babylonians have come, and they've besieged the Israelites. They've taken them from their homes. They've taken them from their businesses. They've taken them from their place of worship, and they have brought them over into Babylon territory, into a place that's desolate, arid, into a desert, into a dry place spiritually and both physically. And the Israelites are in a place of desperation. Because they recognize their depravity. They recognize that they messed up and they recognize that they need God. And God has now come to a point that he wants to do something profound in their lives. He wants to deliver them. He wants to pull them out because they're in a place where their lamenting has turned to repentance. And he wants to give them a newness. And so he tells the Israelites, forget the former things. What does that mean? Well, in this text, the Israelites had to have been discouraged. But why? I'm going to tell you why. Hold on. Because the problem, the way, the reason that they were discouraged and they struggled to believe that God was going to do something is because they referenced the old days. They went back to the old school and they thought of another time that the Israelites were in captivity. You know when that was? When they were in Egypt. And they began to think, well, uh, God heard their cries and God delivered them and sent them Moses. Not only did he send him Moses, he parted the Red Sea and gave him dry ground to walk in and then eventually led him into the promised land. 
Now, why are the Israelites discouraged? Because what they're doing is they're associating the way that God did things in that moment in the way that he's going to do things in this moment. And what happens is, is they begin to look around and they see no water. They see no river. They see nothing but dryness, nothing but arid territory, nothing but desert around them. So they're like, there's no way that God can do something new because the way he did it then, he can't do it now. And so what God was telling the people is like, yo, you need to forget in the manner in which I moved all those years ago. You need to forget the manner in how I brought the miracle by that time. You need to stop putting me in a box. So the people of Israel were looking for God to move over here, but God was saying, I'm going to move over here. Yes, over here, I parted the waters and I gave you dry ground to walk on. But over here, I'm getting ready to part the dry ground and I'm going to give you water for your parched lips to be able to drink from. And so God was doing something new, but the new thing was predicated on them letting go of the old thing. As you step into a new season of your life, you're going to have to forget some things. You're going to have to let go of some things. And that's where it becomes uncomfortable for us. The reason we get stuck in a pattern of sin and a, and, and a pattern of being stuck is because although it's skaka, it's familiar. And we'd rather be in familiarity than be in the newness of the Holy Spirit leading us into new ground and new territory. Are y'all with me this morning? And so if you're going to say, God, have your way, when he begins to have his way, you need to be okay with it. Because it's not going to look like the way that you want it to look like. In our heart, we plan our ways, but it is the Lord who determines our steps. So the second thing you're going to need to do is you're going to need to keep your eyes on the unseen. You're going to have to have eyes of faith going into this next year. Samuel had to have eyes of faith. God said, beloved, you have your eyes on what is seen, but what I see is unseen. The matters of the heart you cannot see. Eventually, they manifest in words, in thoughts, and in actions. But I look at things that man doesn't look at. I look at things through eyes of faith. You are going to need to have eyes of faith. And let me tell you something. You need to have eyes of faith before it comes. Oftentimes, we say, oh, I've got faith. Yeah, you got faith because you already got your race. Yeah, you got, I got faith now. Yeah, you got faith because your son came back to the Lord. But did you have faith when your son was out there in the street struggling with his addiction, knowing that I have raised him in the ways that he should go and knowing that when he is older, he shall not depart from it. Let's go back to Isaiah. What after God said, you need to forget the former things. What did he say? Do you not perceive it? Do you not see it? Imagine that they standing in the desert. It's dry as all get out. It is no water to be found. There is no breakthrough. There is no movement. There is nothing going on. And God says, but do you see it? Do you perceive it? Imagine God. Um, what happened was, uh, 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 Pepe, what about you? We don't see a dang thing, God. What's going on? And see, the interesting thing is that God was trying to activate their faith. It was predicated on two things. Hey, forget the former way that he's done things. And secondly, have eyes of faith to see it. You got to have eyes of faith to see it and believe it before you receive it. And I believe that in this next year, God is calling you to greater faith. 
God is calling you to a greater elevation of trusting in him like you've never trusted him before. He's calling you to lean on him and stop leaning on your own understanding and in your own way of thinking and in the things that you see. I don't know about you, but listen to this. You want to know what attracts God? It's not your eyebrows. It's not your eyelashes. It's not your Louis bag. It's not your boots. It's not your truck. It's not your job. It's not your 401k. It's not the size of your church. It is your faith that attracts heaven. There's only two places in the Bible where Jesus was marveled. He was marveled at the lack of faith that the Israelites had, and he was marveled at the amount of faith that the centurion had. I want you to understand the Israelites represented, let's just say, the Christian community, if we can just for simple reasons. Those that were closest to Jesus did not even believe that he was the Messiah and he was able to do what he said he's going to do. And a man who was a pagan, who served a pagan nation, who led a pagan army, had more faith in Jesus than Jesus' own people. What does that say? That says that proximity and familiarity can be a killer of your faith. Familiarity can breed content, as Paul says within the context of communion in the message translation. It seems like the longer we walk with Jesus, instead of being more in awe with him, the more we start to doubt him. It's like those who have been married longer. You would think that our marriages would be much more exciting and that much more loving and that much more, uh, more, that much more energy, but we become dull and we become stagnant the longer we've been with someone. The longer we've been with someone, the longer we should have and the more we should have an awe and a reverence and an excitement for that's why when people come to me, I've been serving Jesus for 25 years. Then why is your spirituality acting like you're 25 months old? It's not about your time, but it's faith. It's like, do you believe it? Do you perceive it? Because God will ask you in a broken marriage, do you perceive that I can make this whole? God will ask you when your children are wayward, do you believe that I can make all things new? Do you believe that I can bring them back to you, back to me? God will ask you in the midst of being bankrupt when your business went down and went upside down because of COVID and because of all the things that were going on. And he will say, but do you believe that I can resuscitate that which was dead? That's a good place to give God praise. If I did it with Lazarus, I could do it with your business. If I did it with Jesus, I could do it with your marriage. It ain't nothing for God. He says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed. Do you know how small a money he said if you have you could have said if you have faith the size of an elephant, if you have faith the size of a building. No, he says it's all the faith that is required to be able to tell this mountain to cast itself into sea and it will be done. And so as you go into this next year, keep your eyes on the unseen. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 4:18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. This is key since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Y'all are making long-term decisions on temporary fixes. Y'all are making some bad choices on what's temporary instead of what's eternal. Invest into the eternal, not into the temporary. Invest into the kingdom and not just into your retirement. Invest into what God is doing, not into your just your child's baseball games. Invest into the eternal things. But it takes faith. Are you still with me this morning? And it brings me to my third out of 27 points. As you step into this next year, 
thinking about forgetting things and seeing you have the faith to see things. Recognize this. God anoints the small things. Your belongings will seem humble, but so prosperous will your future be. The new thing that God wants to do rarely looks like much in the beginning and it's in conception phase. The thing that God wants to do, the new thing rarely looks like the new thing. Some of you right now, you are standing in the midst of the new thing. You have prayed for the new thing. God has bestowed the new thing upon you, but because it does not look the way that you want it to look, you think that it's not there. And God is saying, beloved, I've already given to you. Would you have eyes of faith to see that I'm in the small things because it's in the small things and where I get the glory. How do we know? Just look at Gideon when God cut his army down to 300. I ain't going to get no glory with that big army, but I'm going to get glory with this small army because they're going to look at you and where you're from and where your family is from and where your clan is from. And they're going to look at those 300 troops and they're going to say, how did they overcome the enemy? But God. God is in the small Why? Because if you're faithful with the little, then you'll be faithful with the greater. God is in the mundane more than anything. You know that we we, we rule out the mundane. I think we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven. And we see the people that have more bigger crowns than some of us pastors. The people that are going to have bigger mansions. Whoever's got that bigger mansion, let me get your phone number. I can come kick it in heaven. Because we think... That the spectacular and the big is what God is attracted to. God is attracted to the faithful and the mundane, in the day-to-day, in the everyday. You know, people are like, I just want to be used by God. I just want to be in full-time ministry. I'm like, are you alive? Yeah. Are you breathing? Yeah. You got the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Then, Bubba, you in full-time ministry because everywhere you take those two little patas of yours, you have the ability to be in ministry. Wherever Jesus is king, there the kingdom of God is. So if Jesus is king in your heart, the kingdom is within. And everywhere you step, you bring the kingdom of God with you. Worship team, you can begin to come up. But he anoints the small. And I think that's where we've gotten mixed up in the church world, in the Christian world. No, he only anoints the big. The big started off small. Will you be faithful with the little? Will you be faithful with what he gives you and what he places before you, what he puts in your hands? Remember, I said this last night if you were here. God will never keep you accountable for something that he never gave you. Whatever he's put in your hands, David, a slingshot and a stone, would you be faithful with it? He anoints the small, the David, the overlooked one, the one that went to go fight off a giant. With a sling and a rock, the small that led to the greater, a man who would eventually become a wartime hero, a man who would eventually become the leader, a great leader of an incredible nation, a man who would pave the way for his next generation to build the temple of God, a man who would be used mightily, but a man who had to be faithful in obscurity. That's a word. Learn to be faithful in obscurity before God puts you on a platform. Learn to be faithful in the unseen. Learn to be faithful when nobody gives you recognition. Maybe that's the new thing that God wants to do. That you've been so hungry for the attention of man and of people and people pleasing. At the end of the day, you know what the downfall to King Saul was? Is he had a people pleasing spirit. 
At the end of the day, he was more concerned with what people thought about him in his image than he was with what God thought about it in the image and the Imago day that he was created in the image of God. And it was that very thing, I want you to understand, that was that very thing that got him off of the platform and for all the generations that would come after him. It's learning to be faithful. It's learning to know that he anoints the small things. And lastly, it's this. The process that God takes us on is usually messy. And not everyone's going to understand your hustle and your grind, but the destination is always glorious. I want to say this because I want you to know that just because I'm up here on a platform having this conversation with you about this being a great year does not mean that this year will not come with hardships. That is where we get it wrong in the Christian world. We think that now because we're saved, we're sanctified, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and my business is for God, and I'm doing this for God. How many people done did things for God and ended up in a bad place? Paul church planner extraordinaire, wrote a majority of the New Testament, gets stoned in Ichium, gets dragged out, left for dead, gets right back up, goes to the next city to preach the gospel. That's the tenacity that we need to have. That's what we need to do. And some of you in this place, you've encountered hurt along the journey. You've encountered hurt maybe from a previous church experience, hurt from another situation, and you've been sitting in that hurt. And I don't want to minimize nor negate your hurt. It was real. It was valid. But it's time to get up from that place and move forward. How do you find your healing? All you have to do is look at the book of Revelation. John wrote the book of Revelation. Do you know how John started? He was in the island of Patmos. They tried to murder him by boiling him in oil. He was the original Kentucky Fried Boy and he survived and they exiled him to this island and Jesus appears to him and you know what Jesus said to him Jesus did not say I John pobrecito oh John would you like some neosporin John are you okay you know what Jesus said to John he said John start writing I got something to say what's the implication there that sometimes your healing will come in your serving Sometimes your healing will come in you getting up and continuing to believe and put one foot in front of the other. I want to tell you, for some of you, it's been hard. It's been a hard couple years. Maybe it's been a hard few weeks. But you need to have faith. You need to believe. I love Abraham. He was considered the father of faith. Remember, Father Abraham, how many sons? No? How many sons? No, I'm just kidding, right? <laughs> always wanted to rap never happened but it just did see what I did there I have faith (laughs) I see the unseen someone's like nah Bubba we all see that it ain't good (laughs) stick to your daytime job but it says that Abraham believed I can't remember where it's in Genesis 15 or where exactly it was but if you break down this word believe in the original Hebrew the depiction of it the illustration the imagery that you get that you would see is be of someone who is continuing to put one foot in front of the other 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 so when the Bible says that Abraham believed that he was a credit to being the father of faith he may not understood he may not always really resonated with it but every morning when he got up he said you know what I might be standing in a mess I might be standing in uncertainty everything in hell might be coming against me but you know what I'm gonna wake up this morning and I'm gonna believe which means I'm gonna continue to put one foot in front of the other and I'm gonna continue to step into everything that God has for me whether hell or high water I'm gonna continue to move 
My process may be messy, but my destination is glorious. It is in heaven with Christ Jesus. So I'm going to keep my eyes focused on what is unseen. I'm going to keep my eyes focused on Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. Would you stand with me this morning? Thank you again for tuning into our podcast. For more info, please visit our website at thrivelathrop.com. Have an amazing rest of your week.